Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Sunday, October 30th. Happy Halloween. And I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? I'm spooked. Lighting shift really hit me in the last week, week and a half, and knowing daylight savings is around the corner is making it all the more terrifying. Uh, other than that, had a little too much Kanye West, Elon Musk in my Twitter feed this week, and uh, looking forward to chatting some stuff outside of that in the next little bit. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, got to carve some pumpkins this afternoon and partake in the uh, maybe too much junk food uh, around this time of year, but only downhill from here with the weather getting colder, your body just naturally wants to hibernate and, and consume. I feel like you're one of those guys who goes to Dollarama post-Halloween and loads up on the uh, stuff that didn't sell. Yes, but also no, because I know that's what I'll do. And then, <laughs> so, yeah, um, accessibility there, I think, is a good thing where I still only have my bike and, and Dollarama is a bit of a ride. Mm. So I'm hopefully just going to try. The problem is, is my family that enables the, right. the consumption of sugar. And yeah, you go home and it's just offered and like put in your face. Exactly. So got to spend a family Thanksgiving this weekend because we weren't able to do it a couple of weeks ago on Saturday. Uh, and I got a, a bottle of cider and some chocolate and some shortbread cookies. Mm. And yeah, it adds up really quickly. So now I definitely oh, yeah. need to, to go to the, uh, to the gym tomorrow. That's on the, that's on the <laughs> checklist. There you go. It, I don't fall for that stuff on the Dollarama, but like sometimes just, oh, I like have three, four bucks and which inflation being what it is doesn't go as far there as it used to, but like still I'll walk home and then the next two days is just disgusting. <laughs> Seriously though, I had like somewhere in April started like doing serious groceries at Dollarama, like cereal and KD shit that was like, 50 cents to a dollar like yeah. cheaper than two dollars even cheaper than the grocery store but like everyone's fucking doing it now and the prices went up so yeah. it's like sold out and not as cheap anymore yeah the uh the inflation is hitting everywhere and we are heading closer towards a recession but i think we're gonna look back and say yeah you were in a recession then yeah uh but because we'll, uh... like the gdp growth has not gone up two consecutive quarters or three consecutive quarters or something like that's the official marker i'm not nearly knowledgeable enough to to break it down on the pod today so mm. we'll just continue to skate by the scariness that is life and continue to talk our salvation in sports right um that's Felix, what we're here for on an absolute terror we'll be talking about him today the NFL week eight just about wrapped up just two more games left on the slate and then of course some basketball to talk as well I'll preface the start of the show by saying until the Toronto Maple Leafs show effort we're not going to give them our effort so they don't belong on the pod yet this season um, I apologize to the hockey fans but we'll, we're, we're not going to spend so much time on that today 
uh, we answer the same questions every year and ask the same questions every year and have the same disappointment every year. So we know what parts of the journey we can skip over and which parts are the quintessential Toronto Maple Leafs experience. So we'll be expediting that. In the meanwhile, though, it, it almost feels a bit to my shame that what you'd say is the best tennis in Canadian men's recent long history uh, has kind of been a footnote at the end of our podcast for the last two episodes. Felix Ojeda-Aliassime today won his third straight ATP level title. This one a 500 level event, the previous two 250, all in part of what we'd call the European hardcore season. Uh, this week's coming in Basel, Switzerland, also known as the Swiss Indoor Open. Uh, he took the finals today over Holger Rune, uh, a 19-year-old up-and-comer who's leading the next-gen ATP seeding race, just to put some perspective on where he was. I think Rune was coming off his own victory uh, ATP-level title the previous week. He hadn't been broken all week, uh, so it was a real two trains running full of momentum clashing into each other and Felix prevailed, continued his own streak of not getting broken. And so that was the entire draw. He managed to not drop a service game in. Uh, this one, he was ridiculous. I, I think 74% of his first serves in. Uh, really massive getting him out of the couple um, bits of trouble he was in late in the second set. Other than that, he was able to just serve it cleanly, um, get to his forehand pretty consistently, really tight right now, not a lot of errors, got a little more out of... And then that clean, efficient style of tennis just meant that when Rune did falter, slip up, he was there to take it and didn't offer many chances. And as I said, uh, winning... I, I think an ace on every break point Rune got. You saw Holger just kind of chuckling to himself, what can I do when he hits it over 200 kilometers an hour? And right in the line on the corner. Uh, he also had a win in the semifinals over world-seeded number one, Carlos Alcaraz. Similarly, like, I don't know how many Alcaraz, if any, matches you've watched play out, but he bullies guys from the baseline. Uh, his big hitting just dominates the narrative of the match, and he was the one getting bullied in the baseline rallies against Felix, just to put some perspective on how well the Canadian's playing right now. Uh, Out-bully rallying the number one player in the world. A fantastic, tremendous stuff from Felix. An awesome week for him, and so happy to see it. Uh, Grand Slam season over, but still two really important tournaments left on the tennis calendar. So we'll touch on those briefly at the end. But Felix well poised for the one and looking pretty likely to make it for the other. Now, I had a tough decision to make this morning. It was either watch Felix or watch Denis Shapovalov, who had his own 500 level finals match to compete in. Shapo's starting earlier and the narrative or the stylistic matchup of Chapo's led for me to select that one, which unfortunately did result in a loss. So it was a bit, a lot of a roller coaster of emotion. Oh, nonetheless, playing against Daniel Medvedev, top five guy in the world, or previous world, number one seed in the world, hasn't played a ton uh, this year. 
but he looked in really, really good form all week in Vienna where this one was held, and ultimately he prevailed. But the match lived up to the hype, like the laser beam versus the bunker matchup, the hyper-offensive style of Chapeau, uh, with the backhand, single-handed left-hand backhand, the ridiculous forehand. Uh, his serve had been money all week. Medvedev's as well. So the defensive player and the offensive player both riding momentum going into the finals. And he got so close, though. It, it really looked for a minute like he could walk out of this match winning it. And it, it was... Uh, but putting this week in the perspective of Chapo's career, a player who always has a lot of, this is great, but what if... You saw some of those what-ifs this week. I want to backpedal a little to his semifinal match against Borna Koric, uh, where that first serve money all through the first set got to the tie break and that's where we see Chapo falter often when he's playing well his opponent's playing well it's a question of who's going to blink first uh, you see like the double faults on the first serve or on both serves a couple unforced errors trying to rush points uh, so this tie break in the first set I especially wanted to highlight because going in uh, Korich had the first point and they played this like 30 shot rally where Chapo got the offensive was attacking several times and Korich with some really annoying ridiculous lobbing gets that just forced Chapo to reset uh, that situation where this ball is too dead too high there's no angle if I attack this I'm probably going to lose the point we often see him attack it or try something to do too much with too little both I think there were like three resets in this rally that he all took calmly, played the point over again, and ultimately he forced an error out of Korich. And that point was everything for the tiebreak. Uh, he served out cleanly. Uh, Korich also served cleanly, so no more opportunities, but none needed because Chapo held off the serve, got the first. And that momentum was all he needed. The second set, he took 6 nothing. Uh, the other guy broke off of Chapo holding steady with the nerves and patience. So was so happy to see that. And that rally was really a microcosm of everything he needed to do and him doing it. So he was really in great shape heading into this final versus Medvedev. Uh, and like right out the get-go, uh, the first two games that he was really committed to the drop shot. Medvedev loves that defensive style. He stands so far back from the baseline. So Chapo took it to him like, I'm not going to let you play your brand. I'm going to dictate what happens. And he was, you give away points on the drop shot often. Like even the best drop shot sometimes just freaks of athleticism, the tennis senses, whatever you want to call it, they get to it. And when they get to it, it's often an easy put away. So a couple of those early, but Chapo stayed committed as if just to imprint on Medvedev. I'm going to drop shot. You have to be ready. You can't get too comfortable on the baseline. And even if a couple points went Medvedev's way, taking him out of his style of game really showed uh, some dividends. And in that third game, Medvedev's first serve wasn't clicking yet. And so the rallies started to go Chapo's way with those drop shots dictated uh, on Medvedev's mind. Early, it seemed like he was able to hold off the break coming back. He really implemented the serve and volley, which is another thing that works really well against Medvedev with how far back he likes to stand and the way he likes to return the serves. The stagger did come in that first set. Uh, Chapeau managed to get another 
break, which was really important um, because we saw the typical two double faults, not the second serve uh, being 50-50 rallies and some errors coming there. But he was able to close out that first set. The second is where it started to unravel. Again, another like a double fault and three unforced errors. Uh, that I don't think Medvedev won a point. It was like the third game of the second set. It, it, um, and then Medvedev's next service game, it looked like the unforced errors were continuing from Chapo. It seems like it might be unraveling. They managed to kind of get himself back into it. Uh, the rallies started to go longer. And uh, Chapo was forcing some errors there, but ultimately those longer rallies, he was hunting, he had to find something, and he went a little long of both of them. So Medvedev came out of those. Uh, fast forward to Medvedev's next service game, though, and staying in it continued for Chapo, getting a couple more errors, but also the shot making came back. He had a couple ridiculous, like, uh, cross-court wide ones after Medvedev tried to attack line. That was good enough to get it. And I think I'm taking such great notes here. And then I really can't make sense of what came when and how it was relevant to the point that's being set up. But he broke back. It, it's He had lost the momentum in the second set. It seemed like Medvedev was riding it all. Uh, it seemed like if you go into a third set like this, it's going to go Medvedev's way. But he broke back. It was all square. He was playing so well. And then right, right, right back the very next service game, uh, Medvedev took it up a level. He managed to get a couple of Chapo's first serves in, which he hadn't been doing throughout the match. Uh, most of his opportunities had come off the second serve. Chapo's first serve wasn't landing that often, but when it does, it was kind of a free pass in those rallies. So this game, we saw that change. Uh, also, the serve and volley, as I mentioned before, had been money for Chapo, but Medvedev finally hit one of those ridiculous replies where you get to it just in the nick of the time. Your opponent's at the net, and you put like a 1 in 50 angle in. You play the uh, serve and volley against Medvedev because it works so often, but someone that good and that athletic is going to get to a couple and burn you on those. Honestly, probably the match-winning deciding point right there. I'm just mm -hmm. returning that one key serve and volley. Really did it for Medvedev. Into the third set, it, another early Chapo service game. They had like a, I think this rally also another microcosm of the player's style. We finally saw like Chapo just drilling laser beams. I like four or five that should have been winners or at the very least set up a winner on the next point that Medvedev dug out and made Chapo work to get a good attack on the next ball on. Uh, he finally hits one that forces like a overhand lob type shot. Medvedev does those so well. He manages to put them in the midcourt where it's not like a guessing game of can he touch it right on the line and make it too close, but he doesn't put it right at the front to give the easy put away. The player has to track it down, move with it. It also lets Medvedev uh, pick his side, like if he wants to run line or cross, and the opponent can't really track him as they're tracking the ball. You saw him get a point earlier off of that tactic. Uh, this time, though, a little more tricky, a little more footwork required from Chapo, and he went about a foot wide with it. And that seemed to kind of set the tone for that game because Medvedev, before you knew it, was at love 40 and Chapo double, double faulted to give him the break. 
that's when Medvedev's like level step up really became apparent. The uh, the next game, Chapo putting his first serves in, but the ridiculous defense kind of cemented and triumphed over Chapo's offense at that point. Some of the returns were just that like one in ten shot except it was coming consistently. He got like three winners he had no right to uh, that could have been like the defining point in a back and forth deuce or a tie break, except like he stacked them right next to each other to get the double break. It felt like a matter of time there. Um, I was happy to see Chapo on his next service game trying to defend for the set, went down 1540, giving Medvedev three championship points. He was able to defend those as well as hold off on Medvedev's serve. It went all the way to the seventh championship point before Medvedev won the championship. Uh, But nonetheless, he did walk away from it looking like the better player. It was just a fucking roller coaster. I don't know if I was able to convey that in the notes, but like being up a double break in the first, dropping one, going down early in that second. Uh, getting the break back and then dropping it i was jumping moving pacing all over my apartment it was really fun tennis Uh, the offense versus the defense was awesome to watch everything that stylistic matchup was billed to be i think chapeau did a tremendous job getting medvedev out of his comfort zone it was by far the hardest match he had to play all week Uh, he asked a lot of questions that medvedev had to search to find the answers for and the what-ifs continue, if he had held a little more consistent, if he hadn't given up that break back in the second set, a few less unforced errors, a few less double faults here and there, and this would have been a much, much closer match. But compared to where Chapo was over the summer, the progress that we've seen over this last month has been really fun and satisfying to watch. We feel like if he can just keep making these improvements, uh, We'll see these type of finishes and results more consistently throughout the calendar year and more success will lead to more success. So as I said at the outset, a really awesome month for men's Canadian tennis. Uh, And that's going to, for both players, roll into next week where we have our last 1,000 level Masters event in Paris. We're also going to have Carlos Alcaraz, Andre Rublev, the aforementioned Daniel Medvedev, Yannick Sinner, Kasper Rudd, Novak Djokovic, and Rafael Nadal, uh, all competing, as well as guys like Tsitsipas, Berrettini, and all the other guys, really, who have been tearing it up on tour. I, I didn't notice many names that haven't been relevant this season, not in this draw. Uh, Taylor Fritz as well, who along with Herkaz, Rublev, and Felix will be competing for the last spot in the Nido race to Turin, uh, which Medvedev qualified for yesterday. And Felix, as long as he plays around as far into the tournament as Fritz and Rublev will lock up that spot. I think he faces Fritz in the third round. Rublev, uh, not too tough a, a draw for Felix. He's the only one seated there. Uh, so it's looking pretty good for Felix to go into Turin as well. All right. Just, I feel like there was so much more to say, and that was far too long <laughs> to talk already. So we're going to wrap up our tennis talk there and I'll hand the mic over to you for the world of the NFL. Oh, yeah. Uh, Milos Raonic, I remember he competed in 
the ATP finals a couple of years ago, uh, it'd be nice to see a Canadian back in there in that event because it is every year that event grows in more prestige uh, in terms of the value it has in the tennis community. Um, on the note of Canadian performance, this coming to me now, Canadian women's swimming, Max. Yeah. They are, this is, this is the golden era, golden generation. I know that's a soccer term, but uh, Maggie McNeil with two golds, Summer McIntosh beating Katie Ledecky in the 1,000, uh, and, and the women's swimmers, they are up and I can't wait to watch some of the Olympics, so I had to give a quick shout out there. But we'll move on to. Do you, do you know like what the longevity on like female swimming success is? Well, it depends who you are. If you're Katie Ledecky, then it's sixteen years. But <laughs> it, it's always interesting because you see some kids have some success from fourteen to seventeen before their body really starts producing lactic acid mm. at a high rate. Yeah. Right. Um, that's always an interesting one, but, uh, yeah, good question. I have to do a little bit more research there. I was just thinking like when you hear Summer McIntosh talked about, it's like, oh my God, this like 16 year old Canadian swimming phenom. And the part of my brain is like, haven't I heard this script in the last like six years? uh, Penny Alexia. Exactly. So like just the, the spotlight shifted so quickly at like six years, it was like this, like is this going to be the person? I don't really know the male side of that as well because there haven't been any like up and coming prospects. And the only swimming name like I can think of off the top of my head is Michael Phelps, where longevity wasn't an issue. But you just mentioned someone on the women's side who had that longevity as well. So I'm not, I wasn't sure if it was a male versus female or more of just like a, there's some swimming athletes who last and some who peak in those teen years. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, I, I, my assumption physiologically tends toward it being a longer wing window of dominance because swimming, however, incredibly taxing on your body is not a high impact sport. Yeah. Like different types of injuries there, but it's something that you can do for a longer period of time without your body breaking down to the same degree as like an impact sport or lots of uh, heel compression when you're running or, or cutting or doing stuff. So interesting. Yeah, there you go. There's a little side tangent before we get into uh, football fan cave for this week. Um, Arsenal beating Nottingham Forest 5 0 this weekend to retain top of the table status. There's my Arsenal update for the week. Go Gunners. You didn't watch it, eh? No, of course not. <laughs> I had to make sure they won. They play Chelsea next weekend. I have to be, I have to lock myself in the closet. <laughs> All right. Uh, NFL, what everyone's here for. Uh, the Thursday night rewind here, Baltimore Ravens putting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on fraud watch. Uh, poor Tom Brady. What a week for him. Dropping this game. Bucks fall to three and five on the season, uh, losing to the Ravens. And then the very next day announcing his divorce, finalizing uh, with Giselle Bunkin. So yikes to Mr. Tom Brady. Um, I think the general sentiment across the public is he probably should have called it last year and he's really just making things worse for himself this year by playing uh doesn't look as athletic he obviously doesn't have the same weapons around him to utilize with the injuries and things just seem out of sync in tampa bay and you can never count him out because of his track record 
but this is this is the lowest his season has gone in quite some time. And the Atlanta Falcons, with their win over Carolina today, are now the top of the NFC South at four and four. So Bucks are right there, and you you favor them against any team that they play against in that division. Uh, but interesting to see that he's fallen so largely from grace. Like he could have gone off on top. Were they six and six to start the season? The year, the last year they won. You might be right. I think they went on a little run there. Uh, yeah. That that continued into the playoffs. Uh, definitely weren't three and five though. Yeah, uh, but and they also had more weapons, a better squad that year. They took it. Yeah, yeah. Their defense really turned it off on the second half of the season. Their defense has been good to start the year. It's really the offense that's causing problems for them. On the other side of things, uh, Lamar looks solid, and the Ravens are first now in the uh, AFC North as they continue to set the pace in that division. I mentioned the Atlanta Falcons, so I imagine we have to go there first for today's Sunday recap. Uh, biggest story that comes out of this one, P.J. Walker, former XFL quarterback and obviously played it last couple weekends for the Panthers, didn't play a couple starts last year, throws the best pass of the season, uh, about a 60-yard Hail Mary on a dime to a diving DJ Moore in the back of the end zone, sends the game into overtime. Uh, but unfortunately, Carolina cannot seal the deal as the Falcons win in overtime on a field goal, which allows them to retain first place of the NFC South. But I wanted to shout out PJ Walker for an incredible ball. Uh, and we'll go to Sunday morning where the Denver Broncos got their sea legs, arrived in London and, and showed up. Uh, and we got to see the first bit of Russell Wilson magic this season. He had a couple scrambles late, and the Latavius Murray run with a minute to go, followed up by a Kawan uh, Williams interception to, to seal things. The Denver Broncos have a fantastic defense, like a top-five unit, potentially, with the amount of talent they have on the field, and the offense has just been laying bricks week after week but if they can get above the 20 point mark they should win i think denver coming into this week had given up has given up seven total touchdowns through seven weeks their defense and they were uh two and four or two two and five pardon me so now they're three and five uh they're still looking up at the wild card race but all it takes is a little bit of momentum and good to get this win against jacksonville and believe they should have their bye next week but they come out of that fresh and hopefully get in a run so things may be starting to look up for the broncos despite the way the season has started just russ please just sleep on the plane ride home don't be doing high knees in the aisle <laughs> so hope hasn't been abandoned for this season yet no no okay the Philadelphia Eagles stay undefeated with their uh, whomping of the Pittsburgh Steelers today, and the Dallas Cowboys play a shootout uh, against the Chicago Bears and need some help from Micah Parsons on a fumble six recovery. Justin Fields uh, didn't want to dive into the pile, jumps directly over Parsons, never actually touched him down, so Parsons got up and ran <laughs> all the way for, for a touchdown after re retrieving the fumble. Uh, but they got lots of offense as well from Dak Prescott, who's starting to look good coming off of injury. And so Cowboys still chasing the Eagles, only two games back in that division. And with the Giants losing today, uh, able to step up into the second spot in, in the NFC East. On those Giants, 
in the afternoon window. They've played a lot of close games, and a lot of people believe that they're not quite as good as their record suggests, and there's going to always be some variance in one possession, one score games. And today, they get beat by a Seattle team that many had projected to maybe be the worst team in the NFL. They are now 5-3 and three and first in the NFC West. And Geno Smith is managing the game. He's not losing them any games. And they nailed on all of their draft picks this offseason. Kenneth Walker looks like a phenomenal first-year running back. And Tarek Woolen is definitely in the one or two conversation for defensive rookie of the year. Uh, definitely would deserve it if they went by conference. He's been playing outstanding. And this Seattle Seahawks team is young. They run the ball. They don't make mistakes. And they've continued to surprise people. And they're 5-3, and three and, and the Giants lose a tough one. A tough, tough day for the city of New York as the Jets also lose to their uh, rivals, the Patriots. No matter how good this Jets team is, they still won't be able to beat New England. It's been that way now for 20 years. So a uh, bad day in New York. But good day for the Miami Dolphins, who started off in a shootout in the first half. I think it was 51 points scored or, or definitely 40-plus between the two teams playing the Detroit Lions. And Tua Tagovailoa goes 380 yards, three touchdowns. And he was scrambling a little bit and took a couple hits. And anytime you see that, you're worried, especially just uh, two weeks removed coming back from concussion protocol. So, uh, Tua, we got to make sure you're okay. But he looked fantastic today uh, and playing at a really, really high level. Last couple of games here, Christian McCaffrey, uh, three, new three touchdowns with his new team in San Francisco, finally got some time to read the playbook throws a touchdown, receives a touchdown, and rushes for a touchdown. Triple crown today. Big one if you had him in fantasy. Uh, and and uh, on the other side, Derrick Henry, 200-plus rushing yards against the Indianapolis Colts in, in the Titans win to, to keep pace in their division there. So a couple of big wins uh, from some running backs. And that's going to lead me into my fantasy MVP for the week. Christian McCaffrey moved over to San Francisco, and then that led to Canadian Chuba Hubbard being the backup, becoming the starting running back in Carolina. He was out with an injury this week, so it fell on Dante Foreman, and he went crazy with 32 fantasy points. A couple of touchdowns and was trucking dudes in the Atlanta game. Unfortunately, they didn't come up with the win, but he definitely led to some wins for fantasy owners this week. So shout out to Dante Foreman for his incredible performance this week that's going to do it for football fan cave max our monday picks oh we got it we gotta stay in line all right uh well tonight's game packers bills will be an interesting one of course already seven nothing for buffalo we got the cincinnati bengals and the cleveland browns cincinnati a team that was absolutely rolling and then it was announced that jamar chase out four to six weeks could be longer than that with a I think he got a torn labrum in his hip and a hairline fracture. So scary stuff there for Jamar. Right as the Bengals were getting their mojo, I'm still going to pick this team because Joe Burrow is just such a better quarterback than Jacoby Brissett. And this Bengals team does have the confidence. They are clicking, even without Chase. T. Higgins and, and, and Tyler Boyd are wide receivers one and two uh, in their own right, even without Jamar. And so I see them having big nights in, uh, tomorrow against Cleveland. I've been on a bit of a roll with my picks, so we'll see if this uh, this continues here into Monday. All right, we'll make the switch over to basketball now. Uh, 
Uh, I don't know if you clicked on this tweet I've got in the show notes. I did, and then I forgot, but okay. I'll click on it again because well, I did have an, a reaction. It takes you to a picture of one Canadian, Oliver Ryu, standing next to, I believe, the Chicago Bulls uh, play-by-play announcer. Um, the said guy stands about five foot nine. Ryu stands about seven foot six. So you can so imagine comical. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this kid has been on the radar for a long time. I guess there was a photo of him as like a twelve-year-old standing next to NBA center Joel Anthony, and they were the same height. Uh, so he's sixteen now. He's in Florida for high school at the moment. Just getting an early eyes on this prospect. Uh, and some interesting potential maybe there for Basketball Canada. So hoping to hear that name over the next two years, one Oliver Ryu, uh, right out of the city of Montreal. Moving on to our NBA stuff, I'm going to give it one more week before I start hating on the teams that have started this season cold. Uh, It'll still probably be too premature and one month later, so they'll turn it on and prove us wrong. Uh, But we'll look at some teams that have had some good performances over this past week, uh, starting going back-to-back from last week with the New Orleans Pelicans, missing Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, and Herb Jones. Uh, So two of their biggest offensive contributors and their best defensive player, they took out the Dallas Mavericks in a game where they basically led almost all game. Uh, They came out storming. I think they had like 40-something points in the first quarter, finished the half near 70. Mavericks were able to stay close offensively and even got a step ahead in that third quarter. Uh, But this Pelicans team's offense never slowed down, which is crazy to say without the aforementioned players. Uh, But it's just Trey Murphy in particular in this game. It's one of those situations you ask if these guys can do what they're doing starting with these big minutes in smaller minutes smaller windows how scary uh we we see zion get back on the court with the pelicans to help beat the clippers today one of those cold teams we're not going to talk about too much uh but oh this team proving everything everyone is saying early in the season oh Oh, yeah. And I'm at the very front of that line leading the charge. Uh, Trey Murphy feels a lot like Desmond Bain and Jordan Poole from last year, two guys who broke onto the scene. Their names were not big, and a lot of people really in touch with the game saw their potential and saw what they were flashing, and Trey Murphy was one of those guys coming into this year just with his length and his touch and his ability to to affect the game in many different ways. Uh, and playing in a role where drafted to a team like Detroit uh, or Oklahoma City or Orlando where he would have had a bigger role, maybe you lose some of that development, but he's playing in a perfect spot right now as a Mm -hmm. seventh, eighth guy on this team or able to jump up into a higher role with his ability, but he's not relied on that every single night. And so even without Ingram and Zion, Murphy, of course, steps up but he's still not required to because of the consistent presence of CJ McCollum and Jonas Valanciunas, professional scorers in the NBA, right? They can give you 25 if they're your lead guy on a night. Um, And that's so valuable that the Pelicans just have so many different ways that they can beat you and and put the ball in the basket. 
uh and it's it's just really fun to watch right now and zion like just is is this game is still right there at the right speed he wants it even he he's, hasn't had a game yet that is knocking everyone's socks off but 21 12 and 7 this afternoon against the clippers uh the seven assists in particular is just a fantastic number to see he doesn't have to be the one carrying your offense and and it can be a guy like cj mccollum just putting up points game after game so yeah all the way in on the uh, pelicans bandwagon yeah, my last note on this game is just that the Mavericks need to start drawing up better plays at the end. I've seen two games now where the ball was in Luka Doncic's hands and they had a chance to either win it and go for overtime and both times with basically no screens, no action, no feints, no nothing. He's just chucked a three over the defender and missed. Uh, also had that in the opener against the Suns. Uh, this one was a little harder to watch because it came off an inbounds play where they didn't draw anything up and he had been two from eight two from nine or something from the three-point line yep. i think the mavericks might have even had a timeout left to give so that uh is like over the course of a season these are a lot of games that they seem to be throwing away it's something dallas is going to continue to have to address because you can only get so far in this heliocentric model that teams run right we haven't seen it fully to success and so you obviously any shot luca takes you're gonna love right he's he's a top creator uh in the league but it can't be this thing game after game after game especially in the regular season it's gonna burn guys out and you just need to have a little bit more creativity from other players on the floor and get into some sets where you're not just leaving Luca to chuck up shots at the end of a game where he's played a ton and he's carried a ton of the offense and maybe he's a little bit fatigued. If you're going to go heliocentric, go all the way, run him off a screen, make a situation where they're forced to double team him. But if you just leave him outside on the perimeter, decently defended, like it doesn't even generate the open look that you might otherwise get. Turning the clock back a little to Friday night, I wanted to touch briefly on the Cavs-Celtics games that saw the Cavs come away with it in overtime. 41 points each from Karis LeVert and Donovan Mitchell. Uh, a lot of like ISO crossover step-back threes from Karis. He went from six from eight from the three-point line. Uh, ridiculous stuff, even if somewhat unsustainable probably going to be really interesting once Garland is back uh, to see how that offense settles out and how much these guys can play off the ball, as well as just always have at least one of them on the court generating offense. Uh, the main thing I wanted to touch on briefly from this game, though, was that one, the turnovers hurting the Celtics with the high uh, style pace they're trying to play, which I think is brilliant and takes advantage perfectly of the physicality and athleticism that Brown and Tatum have, but there's the drawback. Also, I think like three travels called on Jalen Brown and one or two on Smart. Uh, the refs were really trying to stay in this game and it's part of why I don't wanna dwell on it too much with like 30 something foul shots taken by each team. It was kind of like a bit of a funny game, but just the turnovers from the Celtics as well, Mobley and Allen just had their way in the paint they're going to get williams back but even still it, it seems like if there's somewhere the celtics team loses out it's that like center size uh, and going to be a question for them throughout 
the playoffs and I'm waiting to see how well teams can leverage that. This is the first real indication in the season that it can be a problem for them. Um, but yeah, the Cavs off to a pretty great start on the season, the Celtics as well. Um, it's going to be some fun Eastern matchups all the season through between those two and anyone in, at that level. Yeah, it's a interesting thing that this was sort of their problem in the finals, of course, was the turnover piece. Um, there's not too many teams left in the NBA that are truly going to punish you with a lack of size uh, besides a Denver or Philadelphia. And then, of course, a team like Cleveland. Um, really, this game just highlights the parity of the NBA during the regular season, right? <laughs> the Celtics started out 3-0. It's like, oh, how is this team ever going to lose? But you can't play in that pay playoff intensity every night, and someone's going to get hot. And I've really loved Mitchell so far yeah. on this Cleveland team. He's playing with a renewed sense of fun and passion for the game. And <laughs> that one dunk he had in that game was oh my goodness, fantastic. Um, other piece of this game that I thought was entertaining was Luke Cornett. Have you seen his uh, closeout style, Max? It doesn't stand out to me in the moment. If he doesn't get to the corner, uh, instead he just jumps and blocks the shooter's <laughs> view of the rim. <laughs> it worked twice in a row, but he gave up an offensive rebound to Jared Allen. So I guess you pick your poison there on giving up a corner three or kind of an offensive rebound that's semi-contested on a putback. I guess you you, you kind of almost rather have the two-point shot, right? Because <laughs> the corner three is now the most valuable shot in basketball. And if you can consistently stop guys from making it, then it's an effective strategy. thought it was yeah. amusing. I mean, if you're supposed to be closing out, ideally someone else is worrying about the forward or center in the paint. But... Well, he wasn't. He just was standing under the basket. Oh, and okay. okay. The view of the rim. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the one thing on these back-to-back -back games is you can't get excited and have a hot take after the first one if your team goes and drops the next one. Uh, this Philly Raptors two-game series highlighting that. Um, I will pat myself on the back a little because this first game, on the surface of it, without watching the score, it felt like the Raptors were the much, much better team. And the score had no close to be nearly as tight as it was. Uh, the two, like Philly, just could not keep up with the Raptors in transition. And the Raptors felt like they really had the offense flowing consistently all night. No dry spells or six-minute periods without a field goal. Uh, the two things keeping Philly's offense, I felt like, were one, surprise, surprise, the fouls. And um, beat especially Harden as well, going to the line plenty. The other, Tyrese Maxey, had the athleticism to score at will and some godly three-point touch. I had this in our notes before the second back-to-back -back where the 76ers won off Maxey, so I'll yeah. sort of painfully pat myself on the back a little there. Uh, yeah, so a good first night for the Raptors, not so much the second. 76ers slowly working it out. Maxi is terrifying and should probably yeah. be a much bigger part of the offense than he yes. has been so far. Uh, yeah, and I hate foul calls, so nothing new there. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be my general takeaway was Tyrese Maxi is probably at this point in their careers a 
better contributor than James Harden, the way things look right now, just in terms of what he can create with his speed and, and athleticism, right? There is no one on the Raptors who can stay in front of him. And we saw that clearly. Now, looks like Fred Van Bleet's fighting an injury. Um, he really didn't look good in that game. No. He, he turned it on a bit at the fourth game. quarter, or even the first one. He, he turned it on. for 11 in the game. So In the second he, one? Yeah. So really, really struggled. And yeah, could not stay in front of Maxi. Obviously, you want to put a little bit of more length, but those guys give up an extra bit of quickness. And, and of course, when you've got the range way outside the three-point line and guys have to step up, Maxi was getting to those uh, kind of eccentric floaters that he is so good at hitting and just looked fantastic. James Harden still looked very aloof um, and did not, it didn't look like he just didn't want, it looked like he didn't want to play with any effort. Um, and, and Embiid showed that in game one as well. But with a Maxi led team the other night, the Sixers were playing with energy and it really flipped the script on the game. The Raptors got to 10 a couple times and then just couldn't close it out. I think they got to six at one point, OG getting a steal and slam off of Harden, uh, and then they went right back to Maxi, and he had a quick little five-point run by himself. So uh, tough one there. The Raptors continue to split games, but so far this season, they've only played playoff teams, and so you just look for them to hopefully get a, a good win in here tomorrow against Atlanta because... Uh, they need to start generating one more win per per 10 games than just going strictly 500. Uh, but okay, start to the season so far. And really, it's Pascal Siakam already looks phenomenal. Um, he looks like he did two years ago when he had a great hot start to the season, was named an all-star, and everyone thought he was taking the leap. And then, of course, the shortened season, he struggles in the bubble. Um, but Pascal Siakam, man, it's not just the scoring, which he has had now consistently for a couple of years, but it's the overall understanding and manipulation of the game. He's taking his time in his post-ups or his face-ups around the elbow or on the kind of short corner, um, manipulating the defender, getting to the spot he wants in either shooting or seeing someone cutting in the off-ball action that the Raptors like to find, finding the open player. Uh, his playmaking it is at a at the highest level I've ever seen it, and he's a true triple-double threat every night now with the way that he plays with so much energy on, on the glass, getting the rebounds. Uh, he could be an 8-9 rebound-a-game player, which is... <laughs> intensely valuable for a Raptors team that doesn't have that true center. Um, and then of course the, the scoring just is adds it all up. And my biggest worry with Pascal so far is just the number of minutes he's playing, but he has been phenomenal and like super star is in striking distance right now for him. And now seems totally worthy of the, the third all NBA team selection last year. Yeah. Looking to, on pace to challenge that record this coming season if it looks up. Uh, one last Raptors take that might be a little scandalous. I think I can say this as someone who is late onto the team's bandwagon. Uh, I kind of wouldn't mind exploring Fred Van Fleet on the trading block. Um, with that development we're seeing in Pascal's playmaking game, with so many other guys who can handle and carry the ball with, I think, the fact that 
Ben Fleet's style of play, physique, all indicates his value drops somewhere in the next three to four years. And with the aforementioned defensive struggles, it wasn't just Maxi. It felt like Harden. It felt like anyone who wanted really could get the blowbys against him. If he's dealing with an injury, that's maybe different. I just feel like he doesn't fit the team that the Raptors are trying to build with the uh, size, length, and quickness. The quickness there, of course. Uh, and what he really brings is shooting and playmaking to this team. Uh, but if you can get the playmaking elsewhere, if the shooting is solid uh, one through nine throughout the lineup and you're giving up a lot defensively and it's a value that's only going down in the future, I wouldn't mind shopping it around and seeing what's on the market at that that better fits with the team's blueprint. But I think a lot, there's more to a team than just its parts and maybe there's some intangibles, some Toronto value there that the fan base would be more loath to get rid of or does some damage in some other way. Fred Langley is still the team's only true point guard and I hesitate. He's definitely hurt, so I hesitate to be hasty um it's going it's inevitable at some point that he's not a part of the full-fledged version of this team or at least he's the fourth best player on the floor in the full-fledged version of this team but right now they need him to initiate their offense uh he's often the guy who can get a good shot when things are are scuffling um but it's something to think about i just don't know what's available right there's there's not much out there that is an upgrade over Fred VanVleet, who is in that All Star conversation. Um, so, an interesting thing to think about. My Raptors take that I want to have uh, throw out there with caution to the fans is everyone is talking about this Otto Porter addition to the bench that is going to change everything for this team. There's a reason why he's a bench player, and he is a good shooter, but up until last year with the Golden State Warriors, he was a guy that no one wanted on their team. And I love the signing, and I love how he fits in, but I don't think he's going to move the needle in the way that some folks really believe he's going to move the needle for this team. They need more out of their bench, and he'll provide that. But they just need to have (laughs) better, better production from the other guys in their starting five. Pascal's been great. Uh, Gary has been solid. And then Fred, OG, and Scotty, I think, just haven't shown enough yet. Uh, and, and we need a little bit more out of those guys uh, on the offensive side, at least. Defensively, they've been good. But, uh, yeah, Raptors team just still search, searching for those pieces. And if you know one thing about Nick Nurse, is he's going to try a variety of different lineups and combinations until he finds something he really likes. And he rode the starting five for most of the third quarter and first quarter in the Philadelphia games, and it's how they started to close the gap. Uh, and then as soon as they had to go bench minutes, it was another quick burst where where they lost ground. So Otto Porter will be good in that regard, but I, I just don't think he's going to move the needle in some ways that people expect, and I know that's not what Raptors fans want to hear. Yeah, that, It's such a funny line between on the midnight. Man, when we have both uh, Porter and Boucher, like right now our bench isn't it so, and then you get one of those guys back and that logic feels like much, much more of a stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm more than happy to be wrong on this take. <laughs> yeah, I just going back to my Van Fleet one, it, like those kind of players who can just 
pull up like two quick threes and totally change the dynamic of a quarter. Uh, it's the value is just so dynamic. Uh, and the Raptors have been a great shooting team actually so far above expectation, but it is one thing to get shots in the flow of your offense. And it's one, it's another thing to have a guy like you're saying, Red Fred Van Vliet, who creates threes from nothing, right? But they don't necessarily have a dude who is going to heat check you yeah. from, from, 35 feet like a Tyrese Maxey, which seems to be the way that the league is trending. Like Porter or Trent Jr. will try it, but I, it's not, if it's out of nothing, the results are often not there. He uh, prefers I, to get his shot out of generating contact. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved uh, in that win over Philly, though, he was 27 0 0, like pure. Mm. I actually loved to see that. Uh, and it seemed like he was really Let efficient. Gary Cook. Let Gary Cook. I think he yeah. projects in the final fledged form of this team again. Uh, is He's probably your sixth man coming off the bench there. I would love it to be a Shea Gilgis Alexander if I had to pick the perfect person to add onto this team. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty optimistic. I, I'm more yeah. for me, just like all point forwards, all bringing the ball up at different times, just changing up the offense so much that defensives can't get a read on it and really bully one guy who and like target where they're lacking and ball handling, playmaking skills. Uh, yeah. You do love to have those dynamic dribble up the half court threes when they're falling for you, though. All right, I think that's going to do it for this one this week. Uh, thanks, everyone, for watching. We are fully in the swing of the sports equinox. Of course, the World Series series tied at 1-1 uh, goes again tomorrow, game three. Uh, and, and we've got plenty of more action as we head into the month of November and approach the two-year anniversary of the podcast. hey Um yeah, so thank you everyone for the continued support and we hope you have a fantastic Halloween. Looking forward to all the sports we've got to look forward to next week. Thank you everybody for listening. Sports Next Door signing out.